0: Buglers, we are live from Leicester Square Theatre on the 16th of September with Chris Addison and Alice Fraser. It might be our only London date of the year, so get your tickets now. Oh, get them at the buglepodcast.com.
1: That, that bit's important.
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
1: This is a podcast from The Bugle.
3: Welcome to Tiny Revolutions. I'm your host, Tiff Stevenson. And today I have with me, how can I describe her? Actress, director, filmmaker, writer, activist, the fantastic Maisie Richardson Sellers. I'm going to applaud you on. Thank you. So happy to be here. (laughs) I'm very, very excited to have you on because everyone that I've invited onto the podcast has been a Tiny Revolution to me in some way so i've known you a couple of years and uh, we're going to talk about your work and tell people about you in a in a bigger broader sense first of all i want to kind of say like how old are you do you mind me asking yeah no i'm tw- I- i'm just 10 29 i'm still adjusting so this is one of the things that struck me about maisie when i first met her just how much she's achieved before 30 it's kind of <laughs> it's a bit frightening it's frightening it's mind blowing you've directed your first short film and you're doing all this fantastic work and uh, i was blown away by the fact that you had so much to say so much verve and a really amazing way of saying it thank you we're going to talk about that in detail but this mm. tiny revolutions uh, originally as a podcast was uh, sort of born out of the george orwell quote that each joke is a tiny revolution uh. Now in this new series, we're expanding that brief to talk about art as tiny revolutions and the art that has moved you and the moments and the social moments and movements you've been involved with. So um, first question really is how did you become this, right? How did you become Maisie (laughs) Richardson (laughs) Sellers? That's a fantastic (laughs) question. How did you become this, like design or happy accident? Was it always your plan to act? Was it always your plan to then write and direct and do this other stuff? Tell me about it.
1: Yeah, so both my parents are actors, predominantly in theatre, so I very much grew up in that theatre space, you know, backstage, on tour, um, and I think I fell in love with it. My mum did a play, I think it was The Winter's Tale, and I was three, and my dad took me to see The Curtain Call, just the ending, because he was like, the rest might be a bit much, and I watched The Curtain Call, and he says, I just pointed, and I was like, I want to do that. And it was kind of from then I was just hooked. But I also loved academics and, write- and writing and f- history and English. So that's why I went to Oxford and did anthropology and archaeology. And for a while I thought, maybe I'm going to become an anthropologist, make uh, documentaries for the UN and like kind of go down that route. And then my agent happened to see me in a play that I did at Oxford. And I got a call they're like, have you ever been interested in acting? And I was like, funny you should say that. And that's kind of how it all happened. So it was a bit of a... Part destiny, part skip tumble trip. I don't know, but um,
3: <laughs> here I am exploring them all. I love that you're t- you're like three years old and you're like yes, I want to yeah. do that. What do you think it is at such a young age? Do you think it's do you think it's lights attention? Oh, yeah. is it everyone's eyes in the room or is it? the excitement of this gathering of this moment. I
1: think what's especially always drawn to me with theater and and why I always thought I would predominantly be doing theater, ironically, but it's the energy with the audience. It's that relationship you build. It's the fact it's the captivation. I think at that age probably was also the, you know, the attention, but there's something which is so electric about being in that space and feeling the audience change and go on a journey with you and you know i mean you know what it's like you can feel when 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 they when you've got them in the palm of your hand or or when they're distracted and having to work them back in
3: and it's such an amazing dynamic i think that is addictive for me but i do think rooms hold energy they say about comedy clubs the laughter's held in the in the walls so like this passion and energy and i think as kids we're much more sensitive to that kind of thing i think we cut ourselves off a bit as adults and we doubt our intuition and our gut instinct and stuff like that I'm hazarding a guess here but there was something in tiny you that went oh, there's power and, yeah. and drama and ex- excitement and passion in this kind of definitely you can smell it you can taste it and then you went I'm gonna go and study archaeology or anthropology yeah just... had both of them right wow oh my god <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so that was a journey off on
1: digs I did a dig in um, Albania which was really cool excavated a Greco-Roman child's grave which was yeah I mean you literally have this child you know the teeth and everything is still there, and you're just brushing it, and it feels it feels a little wrong actually. Why? Right. Because you know this child has been put here by its parents probably, and who are we to come along and to take it up and put it in plastic
3: bags and send it to a lab? But it was it was an amazing experience. I did love it. Do you think anything in that informed in that that kind of? digging, archaeology, anthropology, that study of people and history. Is there stuff in there that's informed what you're doing now? Definitely. I think mostly from the social anthropology side of things, because at the end of the
1: day, it's a study of people. It's a study of culture. It's a study of what makes us different. Um, And that is kind of what acting is all about. You're embodying someone else, their culture, their lives, their experiences. And I think because I know so much about the vastness of possibilities within the human experiences, it actually works within my acting as well. And whenever I create a character, I I go deep into their sort of cultural background, their religious background, their spiritual background, who their family are, like I map out their whole world. And I think that has come from the sort of anthropologist in me, who's very much the observer and loves to piece together different cultures and societies.
3: What were your first sort of memories of, or your earliest memories of like politics? And the idea of like political like memories, whether it was seeing a politician on TV or whether it was a movement, some kind of march or activism. And I don't know how yeah. much your mum and dad are involved in that kind of thing. Very much so, especially my dad. I mean, he's
1: been, marching since well, long before i existed and um, he was very involved in like the anti-apartheid marches um, he, he's definitely got an anarchist side to him which got passed down to me um and uh, very much about using your body and your voice in order to help the apart and push movements along i remember the first march i went on consciously was um, the anti-Iraq march. Me too. In London. Yeah, and that was the yeah. first one that I remember clocking it and being like, wow, power of the people. And seeing all those people and seeing how peaceful it was, but also feeling a part of something so powerful and large and bigger than me, really, really stuck with me. And you know, for me, so much about movements and activism is about empowering the group and uplifting as a group and remembering our individual roles and power within the larger system and how we can influence and how important it is to use our voices and how I think we have a responsibility to use our voices, especially when you are in the public eye. I don't think passivity is an option if you have influence.
3: And it is empowering to feel part of a movement and and like you're not just one voice. Definitely and
1: exactly and it builds community as well and it's so nice to have people, I, I get so fed up with conversations when I, when I go and see, meet new people and it's just all about surface things. And you know, for me, I have to go that step deeper. Like I just don't have interest in small talk. So yes. I surround myself <laughs> with people, as you probably know, who are very sort of politically minded and outspoken. Um, so to be able to be in those spaces where that is also the energy as well is really, it kind of, it feeds me.
3: Yes, yeah, I totally agree with that. And small talk, I think I saw someone tweet this recently, can be really quite tiring. <laughs> Yeah, it is, it takes so much energy. If there's not a real realness to it, an out of politeness, kind of like, oh, how are you, like, how are you? But I'm asking, but I don't really care what the answer is. Yeah, exactly. And one
1: thing, because I filmed in South Africa for a year in total, in two separate occasions. And, you know, apartheid ended in 1994, which is so recent. So when you go there, conversation, you know, you meet someone in a bar outside, had a few drinks, and instantly you'll be talking about politics and about race and about life. And it's just so, it's like, this is how it should be to me. Right. Whereas I think we kind of got comfortable as a generation. You know, we had it kind of easy compared to our parents in terms of, this is the first time there's been a big sort of political social uproar in my lifetime. So I think therefore people don't really realize the importance of these conversations because they haven't had to. It has, You know, their lives haven't depended on it before.
3: And I think families who talk about it or chew it out because there are families who are, who will say it's kinda not polite to talk about it or it's not polite to talk about money or politics or let's not because everyone just let's have a nice time, you know. Like, yeah. Definitely. You know, in my family we thrash it out as well, you know, we and we can have different points of view. But I think that's vital as well. It's vital to be able to like kind of talk about what's going on in the world and try and you know, I've got a stepson, I'm trying to get him to understand yeah. politics and movements and equality and feminism and you know like he just he's at that age you know definitely and you have to do it from kid like I remember you know going back to my parents
1: I would be at the dinner table with them all their friends every yeah, you know, I'm only child but I would always be at the table I would never be sent to bed never eat my dinner separately so I would be involved in all these conversations and they would always be like what do you think Maisie they'd always challenge me and question me and so I think that was also a huge part of my activism and the way that my brain works today was because I had that experience as a kid
3: So how has it been being in America with obviously, you know, we're in the midst of a pandemic, the summer's happened, and uh, obviously George Floyd and the second time round of this kind of a big moment, I'm saying a big moment, it's not like a a debutante ball, (laughs) because Black Lives Matter, obviously, you know, as a movement appeared, was it 2015, 2016? I think even earlier, like it was. Yeah, it's crazy how it's only now really blown up. Yeah, and I might be, I might be ignorant on the fa- on the etymology of you know. I remember it being a big thing and being being talked about, and then obviously in the summer again there was this kind of moment. So you're a, a British person in America. What whilst that's all happening, what was that like? It was really interesting. I learned a lot
1: because even though there are some shared experiences of people of color globally. America is so unique to America and I really kind of highlighted the differences between growing up as a person of color in the UK as I did versus in America so in a way I went through a stage of mourning like it really really hit me deeply and I I was I read a lot and I listened to a lot of people went you know went a lot of protests listened to a lot of speeches and I just tried to fill myself with as much knowledge as possible Um, but it was strange having one foot in it and feeling so connected but also acknowledging that this is not fully my fight um, and I have not had the experiences that lots of these people have because I didn't grow up here um, and also you know colorism is very real as well Like I'm mixed race so my experiences as a sort of what would be called a light light skinned black person is different to someone who's a dark skinned black person um, and even talking to my mother in the UK her experience who is dark skinned is so different to my experiences so there's so much nuance within race which really was sort of exposed during this time
3: and your mother's from Guyana right yeah exactly yeah and you went there for the first time when you were 20 is that right yeah exactly it was when
1: I was researching for my thesis I did my thesis on illegal gold and diamond mining in the Amazon in Guyana
3: wow Um, okay and
1: so I went out there and did some research it was it was really really cool because they have um these people who go into men predominantly, well, actually exclusively, who go into the Amazon for up to a year at the time, and they illegally gold and diamond mine. And there's this whole culture that they build around this. Whereas the legal version, go in, massacre the forest, you know, scar it so deep that things can't grow back. And that's the legal version. Wow. So I am sort of looking at the at the ramifications and the political context between the illegal and the legal ones.
3: So there's no real good way, is what you're saying to me, like the legal and illegal versions are. Yeah
1: the illegal one ironically felt pretty
3: good cuz they go in
1: with hand tools you know what they can carry and they they're just digging there's not
3: really you know there's not really much of an imprint right as opposed to in an industrial yeah right right okay so yeah. you're 20 years old you go out there and but you but the Guyanese kind of like culture and everything was much a part of your life at home definitely foods like did you feel like a connection did you feel that side of your sort of cultural heritage? Did you feel a real connection when you went there? Definitely, it was. It's weird because you feel so close to it, and yet even just the accent,
1: everyone sort of looks at you and laughs because it's just you sound so foreign to them. But also, it's like the one drop rule there, whereby if, if you're at any kind of related. It's like your immediate family. Right. So you have second cousins and third cousins and they treat you like, you know, you're a sibling. So it was really sort of family feeling. I I wish we had more of that over here, actually. We don't have that same kind of family camaraderie. And also respect for the elders. Like there's such a hierarchy of elders there and you listen and you learn and the matriarchy. We don't have that in the UK or America.
3: Years ago, I feel like it used to be different. Like uh, people in your family would get older, you'd stay together. And now we have this kind of culture of, I guess people move into like homes and stuff and that can't necessarily be avoided but if we go back like a few decades I think more people kind of stayed integrated into the family and because people literally couldn't afford to so you know yeah you had families who were like no we all have to live in the same house there's six or seven of us and we're in a two-bedroom or a three-bedroom house and also mum's not going to move out because mum's mom and mum helps with the childcare and yeah, and there's yeah. a respecting about the wisdom, the power of age, the wisdom of it, the beauty of it. And it's one of the things I've railed against for such a long time, this idea that's, that age is somehow diminishing as opposed to this beautiful celebration of being alive and 100%. keeping going, <laughs> you yeah. know. And, but But, and it's worth pointing out, you know, we both work in an industry where how we look plays a part of that and yeah. looking a certain way or looking young or looking your age or you know all of these things it's a very hard that's a very hard balance to get to um, and yeah. to f- to find how to be um, positive about aging and the beauty of it but also living in a world that sends out a message to us all saying that women diminish with value we're like soiled goods do. that we go off as we get older you probably maybe haven't found that as much yet maybe because you're 29 but yeah but I'm very aware of it and you see it and you know you see the amount of of work
1: people do in order to try and maintain their youth and and you know it's maybe it's naive of me to say this now because I haven't gone through it yet but for me like aging with grace and just letting it happen is something which I'm extremely excited about but I'm still aware of the wrinkles and I'm aware of you know oh gosh I can't play 18 year old anymore and wherever you are it happens that pressure
3: and seeing it, visibility. So we'll talk mm-hmm. about visibility in a big broad way as well. Because seeing older women or seeing your race represented or seeing, you know, someone from the same class as you represented, these are all like if you can see it, you can be it. So it's really important to be able to I mean, at three years old, you're you're seeing the most powerful example of it anyway, because you're watching your mum. <laughs> on a stage, right? So were there messages from the world kind of saying this isn't for you at any point? Because I felt like that with acting and performance. Definitely. I think growing up, especially being queer... I
1: so rarely saw queer women of color on anything, you know, TV, books, film. We just weren't, there wasn't much representation at all. And I think it definitely made my coming out quite tricky because there was a lot of shame around it. I wasn't seeing it in my social life, you know, with my friends at school. I wasn't seeing it in the older people I respected. I wasn't seeing it on TV and I wasn't reading about it. So I felt like an alien, you know, I felt like an other. And I felt like this was something which wasn't the ideal you know that I was going down a path that was second best um, but I couldn't help it because it's how I felt and it was you know it's a whole f- and I had a, I had a wonderful parents who accepted it straight away so it's not even like I had that from my home and yet I still felt the shame and this sort of resentment towards who I was um, so I you know especially with the films that I'm starting to create and the production company that I've started it's all about representation of marginalised communities. And POC and LGBTQ plus individuals so it's all about from the beginning of creation of creation all of the crew the cast you know the production team the writers the directors are going to reflect the story being told so that we can make sure that if the story is about a young black gay boy that everyone involved has some kind of experience with that or know you know know someone so that you can create from knowledge rather than from assumption
3: it's a really beautiful film as well it's shot beautifully i mean obviously i was in la when you were shooting part of it at our friend's house (laughs) yeah um i was staying with them and it's it's, so the film's called sunday's child and it's it's a journey of acceptance isn't it yeah so it's definitely about a young woman who's
1: struggling with her identity um and you've watched her over the course of one day as she journeys towards self-acceptance through finally being seen by a community who embraces her for being just as she is after being sort of every sort of step she goes down there's sort of a door shut in her face and finally she discovers this underground world of queer POC creative artists who are just reveling in who they are and so proudly and freely just being themselves and she realizes well maybe I can be like that too so you sort of leave on this cliffhanger of that first step of what you hope is going to be a long positive journey
3: so is there a plan for like a feature length version of the short film? (sighs) it's tricky
1: I thought about it I really have thought about it. I don't know yet. I've got so many other things I want I want to tell, so many other stories that we're starting to work on and building pictures for. So I
3: don't know whether this one's going to stay as it is or grow. Do you, do you see more when you saw it? I think there could be more in there. I do, I do. I would love to know what happens to her next because I think there's a, a really beautiful moment where Ace is maybe the first person who's yeah. given her the license to say what and who she is. And that's really, and it's done with a very deft lightness of touch. It's just a lovely scene. But she's like, say you're off a talk. Say that's who you are. Say it, you know, after oh, watching no. her her struggle to sort of come out to her mum on the phone. Because then that was the next question I was going to ask. And obviously your parents were so accepting. But how much of her character is based on you and your experience
1: yeah it's influenced heavily (laughs) I think it's kind of based on collective stories of other people from the community and my own put together my gran is is very religious and she did struggle with it at first um so that phone call is actually based on a real conversation that I had when I was coming out with my gran um and how it crushed my soul just to hear her say I don't know what to say like she didn't she didn't say you know much more than that but just that you know, I was just hanging on her word and that was what her response was and it just crushed me. And then now, six years later, she loves my girlfriend. She's come a whole 360 and just wonderful. Um, But it was hard and I wanted to capture that moment and show hope after that as well because so many people have had a negative experience when they come out. And yet... It's that whole, it gets better message that I wanted to leave people with. Yes. Like it may be shitty now, but there is still hope. Don't give up.
3: And the idea of telling stories, I guess from, uh, about people of colour that aren't just about pain and sadness. Mm-hmm. And I saw I saw various conversations sort of happening over the summer, kind of going, you know, we want to tell our happy happy stories too. We want to yeah. tell our hopeful stories. But I, I, I felt like it was really, it was really impactful because that's the thing. You, you're getting a, a glimpse into someone else's world, someone else's experience and kind of having to have that conversation. And and like you say, your parents were very open with it. Where do you think the pressure came for you in feeling your own shame about it? Was it a societal thing or was it feeling like you didn't fit in or? Yeah, definitely societal. I think, I
1: think it literally all comes down to representation. Right. You know, all of the pop stars I was admiring, all of the things we're watching, all the pop culture we're absorbed in, there was no of color, queer, character or human that I could relate to. Um, And therefore, you know, who are we if we don't see ourselves reflected back to us? Right. Within the people that we admire. What does that tell you? What message is that giving people? And I think also representation is so important because people who don't get exposed to people from other backgrounds or other genders or sexualities their first experience of people with differences is through this the screens that they you know the things that they watch on their screens right so these shows are so important because not only are we showing people that their stories matter but we're also educating people who don't have exposure on
3: daily basis and telling them these people are just the same as you sometimes i worry as a person within the performing arts that i go maybe we overplay how important stuff is and then i come back to this and go No it is really important Um, and if you come outside of it from beliefs about identity um, and come back even further with ideas about the world itself or ideas about love, ideas about money, ideas like when people watch films, what they don't realise is they're gaining beliefs about things. Yeah, Like you are being entertained, but also at the same time, these are the messages that are being received by people sitting at home. So if it's not there, if it doesn't exist, if you're not seeing yourself represented, because I I often, like it's been my thought process for so long that I've come back round and gone, every now and then I challenge myself and I go, do I think, you know, am I being a bit grandiose? Like, is it that, you know, TV and film, is it like the most important thing in the world? And then I'm like, well, it's the, you know, the main form of yeah. like how most people consume entertainment. Definitely. So yes, it is important. <laughs> it just comes yeah. back round full circle. So it's about kind of going, oh, yeah, I, w- I was I think I was right the first <laughs> The yeah, first time. Exactly. And of course, those people were there, but they may not have been out. Yeah, exactly. That's
1: another thing. Or they weren't given the roles that really sort of told their stories enough. You know, so often you see the person of color sort of sidelined, or it's a, it's a bit role, um, or it's the role is only there to really uplift and support and exaggerate the wonders of the lead role. You know, but they don't actually go into their own backstory. Um, so it, for me, it's not just about representation; it's about complex, positive representation. Right. You know, I want to see that this character is a whole human being. I want to know about these characters' wants and needs and triumphs and tragedies. I don't want to just see them on the screen for a second and think, oh, great, look, there was a a brown person on screen. Now I feel better. Like, it doesn't work like that. It has to be well written as well.
3: I think we can see that as well. I think people see that when it's done in a tokenistic fashion. When something's popped in and you go, oh, well, that character didn't get any depth or but like, you know. almost like a producer's turning around and going, I did it, see, Mm -hmm. you know? And you're like, no, this, like you say, it needs to have nuance. It needs to have complexity. So you did that by like getting your entire crew to be, so was it entirely women of color? Was it women of color and queer? Um, No, so all the department heads were women of color. And then
1: the crew itself was 80% people of color, probably about 70% women of color. Um, And then there were just like a bunch of queer women within that as well. Um, so it was really cool and obviously you have to work harder at it and I think that's why people don't bother to really dig people out because they're not being given the same opportunity so they're not being given the same exposure right so you have to find people but they was you know the crew was so talented and so passionate and so invested in the story that the creation environment was so electric um and I and I loved it I loved it it made so much sense having you know all the stuff I've done as an actress has just been white male Completely dominant sets. Right. You're lucky if there's maybe three women on the whole 300 people crew. Right. So to go from that to that was really, really cool.
3: And essentially, it's doing what those guys do, which is kind of going... People that I relate to or that I know or mm-hmm. that I have, I, I'm friends with and give them jobs. Because yeah. that's what happens a lot of the time with the white dudes at the top. It's like kind of passing it down to their mates. And then you hear people go, We well, should be like meritocratic. It should be the best people. And you're like, But if we're all starting the race from different places, exactly. it can't be a true meritocracy yeah. until we're starting from an equal. So there could be a really talented, um, you know, black female DOP out there, but she doesn't know all of the people that run the Mm -hmm. studios or she hasn't got a director that always hires her you know like that symbiotic relationship that you often get between a director and a and and a director of photography you know um so and you that's what you're doing you're going okay I want to go to my community and directly I I am giving jobs to my friends I'm doing what you're doing yeah but because if I don't do it people aren't going to get the opportunity so I think that's a really beautiful I loved that I love that you did that
2: thank you
3: Aside from that, moving forward, you want to kind of do more like sort of writing and fi- so isn't, it's now a production company you have?
1: Yes. So it's called Bareface Productions, um, which barefaced is a Guyanese slang word, which basically means someone who challenges the norm, kind of goes against convention, cheeky, outspoken. Um, and yeah, it's like an affectionate sort of, oh, you're so barefaced, they say, and it's just like simmer down. Um, so I just kind of wanted to use that word and it's also bare face you know stripped and exposed and raw which is the kind of art that I want to create Um, and yeah so like I said it all centers around uplifting and providing a platform for stories of and about and by marginalized individuals
3: so this is exciting exciting to see what else you do next before this though you uh, set up a network now tell me about is it shithority oh yeah shithority yeah So that was um, something that we created
1: with some of the other female actresses in the DC comic book universe TV shows.
3: Yes, for nerds that are listening. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Maisie's part of the Arrowverse.
1: Yep. Um, And again, it was just, we so rarely felt that there was a space for women to have conversations about our experiences and our grievances. um, And we wanted to expand the community we'd made on set to the wider world and create a sort of empowering space for women to uplift each other and to share our stories. Um, And so it's kind of centers around articles, which the community submit and write about any topic. Um, And then there's discussions around that and, you know, lots of just positive self-empowerment and group empowerment um, and yeah it's, it's been a really wonderful space.
3: I think I read something on there I went and looked it up when I found out about it because I didn't know about it and so this is a few years ago so this is just yeah. Maisie in her mid-20s already like starting a network <laughs> for women to be able to reach out to each other and connect and tell their stories so um, and I saw a story from a doctor talking about body focused, repetitive disorders, which is bizarre because I have one. I have Mm. dermatillomania. And I was like, wow, oh, here's this resource. And it's got brilliant people writing on it and talking. And it's just, you did that. That's an amazing thing that you've done. So I wanted to give that a a shout out. Who has influenced you? Who's been a tiny revolution to you? Oh my gosh.
1: Um, I mean, definitely my parents, hugely so. And my gran, my gran, you know, she came over by herself with three children from Ghana, and all living in one room. Found three jobs. She was working around the clock, um, and just made a life for herself in England. And I think the amount that she's been through, and yet her resilience and her how quick she is to find laughter, is so inspiring to me. Um, but in terms of you know people that I haven't had the chance to meet, Maya Angelou
3: is a huge influence. Oh, yeah, Maya is. Magnificent. Completely. There's not. There's probably not a week that goes by that I don't think of one of her books or a poem of hers. Yes, yeah, definitely. So, what's your, what's your, what's your big, were your favourite Maya, Maya moment?
1: I think "Still I Rise" is the poem that I always go back to. But reading her autobiographies was hugely influential. I only read them all about two years ago, and that. Again, seeing her trials and tribulations that she went through, and also her how quick she is just to sort of show her faults just as easily as her sort of amazing qualities was really um, inspiring to me. And the fact that she was what in her mid thirties, raising a son by herself, being a um, assistant at, a, at a, I think she was like a consistent in a journalism company in Ghana at that point, yes, and then who yeah. she became later. You know, because for us, we're told by that point, if you don't know what you're doing, then like forget about it. And yet, you know, she never forgot about it and she always kept fighting for what she believed in. And now look, you know, look what what she became.
3: I like that Maya has a lack of frame for her work in that she doesn't feel that she has to force it into a shape. So this yeah. is someone who sang and danced, like, Calypso songs. Yeah, totally. Like, and um, the Purple Onion was her and Phyllis Diller, like, kind of going back. So she was with all the stand-up people before she did uh, Porgy and Bess. Mm-hmm. Like, she was part of the cast of that. So then she's singing, she's dancing, then she's writing, she's doing poems. She's an activist. And I honestly feel, I never forget talking with, um, and I guess they have to remain nameless, but... Um, Because it it was someone who, it was a man who wanted to do a show about feminism. And we were having a discussion and I said, oh, like, have you read any Maya Angelou? And he said, no. And I was like, I just don't understand if you're claiming to be a feminist and you're claiming to want to write about feminism as a bloke. (laughs) But like, that you don't know who Maya Angelou is, Mm -hmm. is insane to me. And she's got such, have you ever seen the Iconoclast she does with um, Dave Chappelle? Oh, no. it's it's a magnificent what is an iconoclast? person who attacks cherished beliefs or institutions. Ooh, that's a goal. I love that. So it's like people who challenge the status quo. So it's Maya and it's Dave Chappelle. And they have so many fantastic, like Maya around has that kind of hypnotic way of speaking mm-hmm. as well. And you can see Dave wants to, so they're talking about the use of certain words and like the N word. They have a very yeah. deep conversation about that. And there's a point in one of her books where she says, she believes words are like real things. It's really interesting. She's like, I believe it's, they're like an object in the room. It's like, they're real things. It's like a chair, a book, a word. Mm -hmm. And because in one of her books, when she spoke the name of her attacker, the consequence of that was that he was killed by her uncles, I think it was. Yeah. And then she didn't speak for two years because Maya Angelou thought words were like so powerful. So that her and Dave are kind of talking about that. And she says, he says he's reclaiming the word. So it's the reclaiming oh. of a word. And she says, you can put poison in a crystal glass, but it's still poison. And she was like, to me, that was... Wow. That's so powerful. It's really incredible. It's it's so worth a watch. It's like one of the best things I've ever seen. Okay, I'll watch that. Yeah, but the two of them just kind of going through it and how she made Tupac cry. Yeah. That was, I love uh... That story. <laughs> <laughs> but uh for me, I think it was is seeing someone who's so bold and unashamed in her mm-hmm. in her femaleness, in her she was a sex worker and then there was an interview on TV. She was getting a prize and there's an amazing it's another amazing clip where a woman sort of threatened to expose her the female journalist who was like I'm gonna tell them this about you mm. and she was like tell them I mean how powerful <laughs> is that yeah she's like I'm not ashamed she was like tell them I'm not I don't I don't feel shame like yeah. the fact that you think this is something you can hold over me tells me more about you than you know Maya Angelou someone who's who's um I'm so glad you said her because yeah, I can no, talk about I mean, Ma- exactly. I can oh, talk about amazing. Maya for hours. So, were there any filmmakers in particular? Ooh, I think most recently um, Barry Jenkins, Moonlight. Right.
1: Moonlight really actually sprang. It was one of the big springboards for me deciding it was time to actually start my own filmmaking journey. It's just such a stunning film, A, eh? like the cinematography, the, the visuals of it, but also it tells a story of of black men in a way that I haven't seen them being told before. So it challenges all the stereotypes that we have around black men and around black, black gay men. And it tells it in such a gentle, delicate, healing and yet tragic way. And I think the script writing is fantastic. And uh, yeah, and the fact that that, the fact that that was his second feature film, the first one was a tiny independent feature he'd done, And he won an Oscar for it, you know, because it was just undeniably fantastic. Um, And he's so gentle. And actually, one of my friends um, had a a role in If Beale Street Could Talk. So she was saying working with him, he was just so passionate and present and just inspired by the work. And that's the kind of people I want to create with, you know. So, yeah, he's definitely a huge influence, huge influence on me.
3: What's your favorite film? Oh, Wow, I did a podcast recently, which is uh, films to be buried with, and I have lots of favourite films, so it's really hard because they're not the ones you kind of expect. There's ones that you go, I related to, even though I'm not Southern. Steel Magnolias was like a huge moment for me in terms of going... seen
1: that one.
3: Women's stories matter, so it's Dolly Parton, Sally Field. It was the first film I saw when I was a kid that made me go, oh, the women are the lead parts in this, like the male characters stories were minor so that's in there and also The Color Purple is one of my yeah, big fantastic all-time incredible like so I was going to ask you what piece of maybe what piece of art has have you learned from or has changed your mind about thing and The Color Purple for me not that it necessarily changed my mind it's the most heartbreaking film it's the film I like cry the most just like throughout it but also yeah, there's beautiful moments with like Shug and and Celie where she's told she's beautiful for the first time and they have that tender moment, although like Shug's complicated and difficult and drunk and mad, but she's also a star, you know, like there's, and and Danny Glover, like how evil he is in that film and how at the end you almost feel sorry for him for being that horrific and evil. (laughs) It's amazing. And that's the beauty of, I think, good filmmaking
1: and good storytelling in general is showing the gray around characters rather than there being you know the villain and you know and the victor it's very much about it's human humanity like there is so much gray in all of us you know we all bounce between our our extreme selves Um, and that's what I'm interested in is those like textures in between
3: yes the gray area the nuance the detail the but also my favorite films might not necessarily be the films that have influenced me most so I would say something like Steel Magnolias and the Color Purple sort of influenced me and in the kind of work I want to talk about. But then sometimes, like, I love Goodfellas and I love Heat. Yeah. Like, I yeah. outright love those as films. They may not be the films that I make, but I love the film. And sometimes there's something also quite nice about being separate from what's being shown. Yeah. I mean, but we've all, we all learned to love, we've learned to love male stories. We've learned to love you know, white male specifically stories we've had to because there was such a long time that that was all that was on offer. Yeah, and it was always
1: the underdog watching the <laughs> white male finally triumph into his full glory. Um, and you're rooting for him the whole way. Yeah, I mean, like for me, like West Side Story was really imp- powerful thing when I was a kid. Like I watched that film on repeat, obsessed with West Side Story. Um, and I'm thinking back, I don't know why. I think there was something kind of educational about, you know, Forbidden Love, that's such an age old concept and it's so heart rendering and, you know, being told who you are and what the limitations are because of that. What other ones? Uh, Moulin Rouge growing up was obsessed again, one which I loved, but probably wasn't a creative um, inspiration. I love like films like Tangerine. I don't know if you ever saw Tangerine. Tangerine,
3: um, I did see, yes, yeah. Again, like shot on an iPhone. Super cool, super creative. He's the guy who did the Florida Project. Exactly, love the yes. Florida Project the Florida well. Project was amazing. Oh, that's yeah. such an incredible, but heartbreaking as yeah. well. But such an interesting way of telling a story,
1: right? Because it's so yes. naturalistic, hyper naturalistic, that you feel like you are just a fly on the wall following these people around. And it sucks you in in the real way.
3: Yeah, yeah, it really gets you. When you said tangerine, I thought of oranges and not the only fruit, which is yes. the first probably example I can think of of lesbian re- representation or, you know, on on TV on UK TV, certainly. Yeah. And I mean, I could be wrong. There could be something else. Did you ever see that? No, no, I
1: read the book. Right. And I loved the book. I love her as a writer. But... I've never seen it. Should I
3: watch it? Is it, is it good? Uh, yeah, I seem to remember I seem to remember it being very good, but also like fri- I remember being frightened for the main character mm. in it because she had a religious mother and they basically try and exercise the gay out for her. It's like... And kind of watching, having watched recently, just watching It's a Sin. Yes. I don't know whether you've got oh that gosh. out in... Yep. That it is a reminder of, like, in some ways of how far we've come. There's lots of ways still to go. But just the heartbreaking nature of like a generation of definitely generation of boys who you know and wasn't just boys but that was kind of what the story yeah. was about I guess Have you seen
1: Paris is burning the documentary haven't Paris seen is Paris burning. is burning that is fantastic no. as well and again it illuminates a world which which was sort of shoved under the rug for so long um it's this sort of um, do, you, do you know what it's about it's a kind of it's a it's a documentary um about the ballroom
3: culture in New yes, York uh, yes yeah. I've I've seen it referenced on um, stuff like Drag Race and yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. And that's where reading comes from, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, All of okay. the
1: stuff that you see in like Drag Race and Pose, like so much of it is influenced by the world that is captured there, and you know, and seeing the pain, but also the immense community and like camaraderie between these people, um, and the struggles, and just how recent this is as well. Like it's so interesting to think how recently being gay and obviously it still is in many parts of the world but in the places that we were from how recently you know you very much your life was at
3: risk for being out and proud yes yeah and then culturally the hangover of that is the shame that then you feel coming exactly. through going this is why I can't talk about this yeah um, it's the
1: stares on the street it's the laughs behind your back it's the comments you know slung at you as you walk down the street it's the not feeling safe to hold your partner's hand like that stuff's still completely real today for me So when you feel that way, it's hard not to internalise that. When everywhere you look, people are sort of
3: looking at you as if there's something wrong. Yeah. We've still got a ways to go. Yeah. (laughs) We've still got, like, I like to be hopeful, but also we still have a ways to go. So, personal tiny revolutions. And by this, things you've discovered or processes that make a huge difference to your life. So, like, processes for creating. But you've told me a bit about processes For approaching a role Mm. um, and how you do that and dig into that and often in the writing world when they talk about routines and processes everyone talks about what people do in the morning and i'm like what about the rest of the day you know like hemingway went for a walk in the morning then he sat down and wrote but is there anything in your life that's been revelatory whether it's like meditation or something that you've found that's helped you yeah uh, as a creator and artist
1: For me, I'd say morning pages. I don't know if that's something which everyone knows about, but that's something which I really, really love. So morning pages is basically every morning before you look at your phone or ideally before you even speak to someone, you get your journal and you stream of conscious write down for three pages or 20 minutes. Um, And you're not allowed to filter or question anything you're writing. If there's nothing coming to your mind, you just write, I don't know what to say, over a hundred times. And it's all about just allowing everything that crosses your mind out onto the paper. And it's this amazing liberating act that somehow connects to your creativity. And I don't know how how to explain it. It's almost like it takes the plug out. Yes. You can't show it to anyone.
3: It's like a cleanse. It's like a diet cleanse for your brain. It is. a Or like a super cleanse.
1: Yeah, your word vomiting. My brain's just shit itself. Exactly. (laughs) It really is. Um, And, you know, you don't read back over it, which is really important because then you're not trying to curate it. Um, And... It really does just free you up creatively.
3: Yes, you've you've reminded me that I should go back and do that again. I love it. I've got the, the artist way is on my bookshelf here. So that's where I know the morning yeah, pages from. And uh, I found some of my one from years ago. Sometimes it's just a list of complaints. I'm like, oh, you sound like such a complainy bitch. <laughs> but actually, it's quite good to get the complaints out on the page because then I'm pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like enter the world going, no, now today's my good thoughts and good intentions and... What, what, yeah it just really clears it does clear you out and also the not reading back I mean mine was reading back years and years after yeah but I find when I'm writing my inner critic is very very strong and it's a nightmare when I'm going back to the beginning of a script to read through and keep writing on I'm like I find myself going well that's shit isn't it that's like I'm the worst critic of myself I resonate Um, I don't know if definitely (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah,
1: so it's really good that and it's also good to stop you being precious because so often we put you know it's like we're writing it has to be beautiful it has to be poetic it has to be this or that and to throw that all out and just word vomit is really refreshing and it helps me if I go from doing that into writing a script I find that I'm more fluid and free in the script
3: yes yeah you've inspired me to get back to doing it yeah so is that what's a typical day for you now at the moment oh gosh oh no um waking up morning pages a
1: matcha on the porch take the dog for a walk right which I love again walking for me is definitely a meditative thing um do hopefully a couple hours of work be that on a script um or I'm about to go and direct the show that I was on for four years Legends of Tomorrow so I've been doing a lot of prep work for that um or well, learning lines, we've got an
3: audition. That's amazing. So I want to hear about this. So yeah. like especially in the universe that it occupies, you know, like the comic book universe and coming from that to have you like and you're not even 30 and you're just directing TV. I'm so impressed. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so impressed. And do you do you think like acting on the show has given you a way into knowing how I always find like on soaps and things like that, I had a couple of friends on soaps that the actors would direct on that because directors would come in and out and the actors are there all the time the actors probably had a bit more power actually than the directors yeah, 100%. but the actors know how it works technically that we're going to cut on that line the camera's going to go there so it's not even about your best take it's about yeah <laughs> it's about are we going to cut the line here to that because it's multi-cam or whatever um and so you know the set and you know the the day-to-day and you know how it all works do you think that helps 100% and but also I had to
1: really prove to them that I was serious about this that it wasn't just an actor's whim so I shadowed for over a month on two different episodes I did the Warner Brothers directors course as well which was great and intensive I created the short film like it's been a whole three-year process for them to actually say yes um so I'm so so excited Um, yeah yeah we're
3: making it sound like I I've probably underplayed it by going and all this before 30 but yes (laughs) no but it's it's important yeah you've been wanting to do it for a while you know it's a big responsibility I don't know what the budget is but you know you're
1: dealing with a multi-million dollar set and you know every minute is money and you you can't really afford to get things wrong um and you've got superheroes so you've got special effects and visual effects and stunts and it's it's just it's a manic massive world that you're creating so it's yeah it's scary but exciting and I can't wait is that an episode
3: or is that a block of episodes or how does it work so I'm
1: doing the penultimate episode which is kind of exciting so it's yeah it's a a big one it's a a really beautiful one with some emotional stuff also some big action sequences
3: I'm gonna be coming to you for jobs girl (laughs) that's really really exciting well and and exactly like you say it's a because a friend of mine menage uh, I think directs on Oh yeah. Um, I want to say the arrow. There yeah. is one called arrow, the Arrow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He he directs oh, cool. on that. Okay. Uh, but um he's um he's someone who's, you know, kind of like had to go to America in order to get like he did kid althood. That was his oh, cool. sort of yeah. breakout role. And it won loads of awards, but he just found it so hard because it's just a you know there's just such a network of like white dudes who do you know directing so he had to he kind of had to kind of go across the world well that's what I did with acting right it's
1: the same thing you know I wasn't getting seen I wasn't even getting in rooms I wasn't and whenever I did get in the room I was either playing like a street gangster or I was you know playing someone like a slave it was so stereotyped the casting I was going up for and as soon as I get in a room they were like where did you train and what have you done And obviously I didn't go to drama school and I hadn't done anything. So I was basically written off. And then I came out to America and for them, they just want the best person. They want to be the person to find someone. So they just are like, you, come here. And that's how I got lucky.
3: What are your hopes and what do you hope to achieve in the future? Where do you hope Maisie is in in 10 years, five years? Oh, it's a good one.
1: Um... I mean, I'm really, really, really falling in love with directing. I'd love to be able to say by then I've done maybe two feature films um, and also created Barefaced into being a platform whereby we can also host and screen and actually, you know, basically have a hub of creative creatives um, who can showcase their work in a safe space, maintaining creative autonomy um, and really, really creating conversation around the pieces. So that's also an educational platform um as well as also just a visual platform.
3: So basically a powerhouse and I yeah. don't doubt it for a second. Basically we're gonna take over the world, but <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> jump on board. I don't doubt it. So I should give a shout out to your projects. Well, Sunday's Child's going out to festivals and yes, stuff, isn't it? it so is. so look out for Sunday's Child on the festival circuit um you'll see it you're gonna see it it's gonna be out there because it's a a great short Uh, and look out for the next series of legends of tomorrow which is the show that you were in you're not in anymore now not in it anymore but i'll be directing episode 14 season six so look out for that i tell you what you should do is you should definitely go find maisie Uh, on Instagram because there you can link to all of your articles and all of the other cool stuff that you're doing you're probably the person with the most followers (laughs) who follows me you've got something like 1.5 million or something (laughs) Uh, so but you can read all of the articles and everything else there's great stuff on there anything Maisie related you can get to there anything else you want to plug fantastic no
1: stay safe stay happy kissing booth oh yeah kissing booth three we filmed it two years ago so i keep forgetting that it hasn't even come out yet but yeah i just did some adr on it and it's looking fantastic and i think it's going to come out at some point this summer so i'm really
3: excited about that that was Maisie richardson sellers thank you for listening come back next week for episode three when you'll hear from another great guest see you then bye bye
1: this is a podcast from the bugle You can listen to other programmes from The Bugle, including The Bugle, The Last Post,
0: Tiny Revolutions and The Gargle, wherever you find your podcasts.